Welcome back to another episode of Growth Marketers Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Rowe. Um, today, rather than our typical co-host, Samuel, we had a guest on the podcast. His name is Sam Colbert Heil, and he is actually the president and CEO of a company called Brand Live, who's doing some interesting things with very high production value video content that's being leveraged by brands for internal town hall type meetings, webinars, sales demos, live events, hybrid events. It's a really cool and unique platform that I know a lot of our clients and customers and listeners of the podcast are making a shift towards video in their marketing strategy, but maybe needing some help in terms of creating high production value, really quality content. So we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about his company, but we also talked a little bit about his you know, philosophy when it comes to marketing, when it comes to investing. He's invested in quite a few companies. So really insightful conversation. I hope you enjoy. Please give us a like, subscribe to the podcast, share it with a friend or a colleague. Let's dive right in. All right, welcome back, everybody. We have a guest on our podcast today, Sam Colbert Heil. He is the president and CEO of a company called Brand Live. Let's just start there. Sam, thanks for joining us, but introduce yourself and uh, introduce Brand Live to our audience. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I am a, a Philly guy. I grew up in Philadelphia, huge Eagles fan, went to the Sixers games as a kid. <laughs> and after college, I, I moved to Los Angeles and my parents were not pleased with me for making that that trek <laughs> three thousand miles away, but I resisted uh, coming out of Wharton. I resisted kind of going to New York and and the kind of like traditional finance path. And I found myself in LA, in Hollywood, doing traditional software investments in an era that was largely focused on on-premise software and and pre-software as a service revenue models and invested in a little company in Portland called Smarsh, moved to Portland, Oregon at 24 to help run the company as kind of the number two person, did that for a decade. And in the course of the 2018, 2019 period, got introduced to this little company in Portland called Brand Live. I was on kind of at the board level and when asked to kind of help them figure out who the next CEO would, was going to be, I started to kind of dig into the company and the product and realized that the business was really different than I expected. It was kind of started as a live streaming QVC for your brand. In fact, it was your brand live was the website. And so I just thought of it as like a shopping e-commerce kind of concept. Mm -hmm. And when I started to dig in, as I was trying to help them, advise them, figure this out, I saw that the usage of the platform was largely Fortune 500 companies, big brands, big names, Nike among them. And the use cases were largely internal or partner education where people were using the product to, to, to tell their stories or to communicate in a way that that was you know one to many. And that was not what I expected. It wasn't what the website said. It wasn't honestly what we were discussing in the board meetings. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I know that problem. I had done a bunch of video work at my last company. I planned the all-hands meetings and a bunch of the big marketing events. I was very involved in event marketing. And so I thought, okay, this is something that is ripe for reinvention. And I decided to go back and try to negotiate to buy the company from the existing shareholders. And we closed that transaction right before the pandemic. I became CEO January 31st. And I wasn't expecting this to be <laughs> what it is. I wasn't sure. I believe in happy accidents, but the business just exploded post-pandemic. It took a while. It took probably two yeah. months, maybe mid-May, for people mm -hmm. to realize we weren't going back yeah. for the next quarter. You know, it's like everything in events is a quarter out. You generally plan your event like mm -hmm. three months in advance. And so mm -hmm. people were just kind of taking a wait-and-see approach. And it was just insanity mid-May forward where we were trying yeah. to really help large companies with this problem of making their virtual meetings and events more interesting, more high production value. And it was right around this period where we literally were sitting around a table for a GoPro show. We had eight computers because there were eight presenters and mm -hmm. we were pinning Zoom meetings to try to piece together a canvas, basically layouts that were interesting and to switch between layouts. So we had eight computers for the people and one computer for 
the software encoder is what we call it. And um, we're like, this is ridiculous. This can't sustain. How in the world am I going to do 100 shows a day that require nine computers? And so we set out to try to build software that took nine computers down to one. Creating the content was kind of the original problem set for us. The business started to get more and more traction. We started to attract a ton of other larger types of businesses, multi-level marketing. That got us on the radar of the Biden campaign. We won that account, and the rest of 2020 is a blur. As we turned the corner to 2021, we started to realize, hey, this virtual event thing, I don't know if this is going to sustain. I don't know if this is something people really care that much about. I mean, you're stuck in your house, so you're forced to watch. But if if they're not particularly good and now you're busier than you've ever been, or at least busier than you were during 2020, do I really want to sit there and, and watch a boring meeting or event? Mm-hmm. And so we had to kind of like, hmm, pinch ourselves, go back to the drawing board again, remake ourselves twice to try to figure out what the post-pandemic business of Brand Live was going to look like, what shape it might take. And it was during this period we started to aggregate our best experiences on the platform and realized that the best ones, the best meetings, the best events had nothing to do with the software, chat on the side polls, all the stuff around the video player, but rather were the in-video experiences intentional and did they put their energy there? High production value, good cameras, nice lighting. Did it have a, a story arc? Was there a beginning, middle, and an end? Did it move people? Did it elicit some sort of emotion? Was there energy to it that people would want to be part of or remember? And so we went back to the drawing board and said, okay, if this is the goal to make great one-hour experiences, great 30-minute experiences, how are we going to do that? We studied everything in Hollywood. We'd get our hands on, watch the content from masterclass by a bunch of different directors and writers, interviewed a bunch of people and realized that high frequency content creators are the perfect model because they're also designing programming that's 30 minutes to an hour, the exact length of a meeting. And we studied this for months and kind of came up with the, the future of Brand Live, which is to bring this concept of a show to reinvent webinars, to reinvent all hands meetings, to reinvent largely pieces of content that happen at companies that are an hour in in length and to do it with the same flair, energy, entertainment, pizzazz that exists in the content we're watching outside of work. Yeah. So it was right around this period, TikTok started to take off right around this period where, you know, we're subscribing to more and more streaming platforms and it just felt like the stuff we're watching outside of work is interesting and, and engaging and different and out there. And then, works a bunch of boring Zoom meetings. Like it was really pronounced. And uh, we just felt like it, it needed to be, to reinvent it and people needed to put their energy there. So that's where we're at now. We're about 130 people, Portland, Oregon, but really excited about this mission to give marketers tools to create great pieces of content, largely with video that, that tell stories and, and drive their business forward. Great. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And as you mentioned, obviously, there's there's been a lot of shifts since COVID and some things are here to stay, some things are permanent, some things were a little bit of a, a flash in the pan. And we see, you know, companies like Peloton and, and whatnot trying to scramble and figure out what's going on. But um, one thing for sure, and, and, you know, since COVID, there was a lot of virtual events. And then now, you know, in-person events are starting to come back hybrid events, um, you know, this hybrid workplace uh, is certainly kind of here to stay, at least it, it seems like it. Um, and I think, F, you know, over everything, what's changed is us as consumers, how we consume content, what we're used to, um, you know, obviously the kind of the Netflixation of, of marketing, if you will, what we're expected to and what we're uh, you know, accustomed to rather in terms of uh, consuming content and, and Netflix as you mentioned, as consumers, we have like super high production value. It's it seemingly should be easier to consume or to create that type of content because everybody has access to really quality cameras and lighting and all that kind of stuff that we didn't have, you know, five six years ago. But on the other end, uh, the other you mentioned, you know, something like TikTok. Consumers were were also used to like this completely raw, unedited, like direct conversation with with people. So. It's interesting that, you know, like a Zoom meeting is kind of just like you said, boring and, and in the middle, right? It's not high production value, 
but it's also not, it's more long form and not short clips uh, and not, you know, that raw. So it's just kind of somewhere in the middle. So I'm curious on, on how you feel marketers are adapting to the actual production piece, right? Because that's really what your, your platform helps you do is create something that's of higher value. Like how are they changing their approach to focusing on the content quality versus the delivery method just being, yes, we know we need to go video, but what type of companies are realizing that they need to focus on the actual quality of that content? So I think most are starting to try to figure this out. And, you know, there's some shocks in, in the world of marketers that have happened and are, are going to continue to happen over the next year. You know, last summer, Apple and Facebook had their big fight, which changed how people use principally Instagram ads and, and market using ad programming. And it shifted a lot of the money back towards towards Google. Mm-hmm. And I think that shock to the market kind of changed, depending on your business, changed how you think about how you allocate marketing dollars. The next year is going to have a very similar shock with how um, how we deal with the, the new rules and regulations around cookies. And I think it's going to change and force marketers to think about how they build direct relationships with prospects, how they communicate in ways that they can connect one-on-one with people. And I think what we found, if you're a marketer, you subscribe to kind of the even the beginning of Steve Jobs' takeover of Apple kind of philosophy is it's a busy world out there and there's not that many opportunities to tell your story to consumers or to your prospects. And so what's really important, what's the most important thing is that you are communicating in a way that they know what you stand for, what your point of view is, what your values are, so that when they come around or circle back around to shop or to buy or to consider purchasing, they pick the person or the company that best associates with with their value system. Mm -hmm. And there's no better way to do that than to to storytell. There's no better way to do that than to use video. And I think you'll start to see as we go into maybe more recessionary period that that marketers are going to start to shift their dollars to the meetings and events where they can have direct relationships, they can get first-party data, they can build engagement scores around, did someone attend? Did they like it? Did they have some sort of action that was going to drive towards an outcome, whether that's Mm -hmm. a a booking or a call scheduled, or if it's current customer, current partner, just high levels of engagement to want them to evangelize your business or to scream it from the hilltops. So I think that's going to shift people to focus on more and more webinars, to focus Mm -hmm. on more and more events that are hybrid in nature that have a virtual component because not everyone is going to be able to afford to fly on the thousand dollar flights and go in person. And so we've started to see there was a huge rush back to in person this first six months of this year, but attendance has not been as high as people expected. And if attendance stays in that 60 to 70% range, we think marketers should consider adding a virtual component that's more top of funnel, that's much more focused on a larger audience um, and make the more in-person experience about connection and getting to know people and, and less around the content. So it's going to depend on your use case. It's going to mm-hmm. depend on what you're planning. But we think that the future of marketing is going to have to use video to, to capture people's attention and to keep them paying attention. And in order to do that, there's only one thing that really matters is you have to make it good. You need to make it yeah. interesting. You need to pay, make people want to watch it. Right. And that's where we come in because we've kind of learned the formula. We built out a creative studio to help people. And you know, we're trying to attack that problem from that perspective that it's really hard to create. Let, let's help you and partner with you to, to teach you how to do this. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Let's dive into the webinar use case specifically because we've been talking about this for a long time around if you truly focus on a customer-centric marketing strategy, and you take away the the vanity metrics from a marketing perspective, you look at, okay, well, how can we best effectively communicate our message and what platform, what channel, what format, if you will, is going to be the best to communicate that? A lot of time it is video, right? And the old, particularly in the B2B space, the old marketing playbook was, or webinar playbook was, you gate a webinar. So the onus is on, I have a clickbaity title and have a great landing page and have a, a small video that's enticing for them to sign up for the webinar. And you honestly didn't really care if they showed up to the webinar or you didn't spend a ton of time on the actual quality of the webinar, the content of the webinar, probably just threw together a couple of slides and, you know, walk through them. Because they gave you their info. Yeah. Yeah. And what you really were after was that contact info. And as buyers in the B2B 
we know those tricks, right? And we know what to expect. And some, you know, we're hesitant to even fill out that form because you know you're going to get bombarded with emails and calls from a sales rep who, you know, spent 10 seconds researching you before they called. So a lot of times people are a little bit gun shy with webinar because they're like, oh, webinars are dead, right? Or it doesn't work anymore. As you you talked about with events, you know, our webinar attendee rate is down, you know, so tremendously that it's it's not even worth it for us to put the time in. But where I think they're missing the mark is they're using the old playbook or they're understanding, okay, we need to ungate this because we need to be buyer-centric, but they're missing the whole point of we need to focus on the quality of the content that we're actually creating. And it's the value of what you're talking about, what you're discussing. And I think what you're taking the next step is also the production value because we need it to be engaging, right? So how are companies using webinars like this and using your platform to produce high production value webinars from a, a marketing, a lead gen, demand gen perspective that you've been seeing? Totally. And there's a huge trend here. And most people aren't doing this. So I think it's a worthy conversation. The webinar, as you know, is a combination of a web seminar. It is mm. inherently archaic, the term. Mm. And because of that, to your point, not only did you gate the content, which isn't a bad idea, right? You make mm-hmm. it exclusive. People need mm-hmm. to register to get access. Like, that's not a bad idea. But the content was largely a single person talking to a camera and some slides. Mm-hmm. Literally no different than what you'd see on a Zoom. Little head and slides, maybe talking heads, two people on the screen, nothing thematic, no musical elements, not narrative driven, basically content that was a sales pitch mm-hmm. and not that good. Certainly mm-hmm. not worth rewatching if you missed it live. And so we've attacked the problem similarly to, to what I sketched out earlier, which is It is largely 30, 45, or 60 minutes. It's the Mm -hmm. exact length of time of television. And so television, if you have commercial breaks, is 44 minutes. So it's the same length as that format type. What can we borrow from those who are creators of TV to try to bring to a webinar? Or maybe we'll call it a content series to to give it, or a show to give it a little Mm -hmm. bit more of a, a fun flair to it. So what we realized is you got to make it good, as, as you said, because people's time is competitive. And if it's not good, what are they going to do? They're going to close the laptop, close the tab, click to a new tab, multitask. It's not as easy as just putting slides in to keep their attention anymore. And so in order to make it good, you 100% need to invest in the techniques that are used to create great TV. So most of the folks who are thinking about this the right way are building studios or using one of ours. Mm -hmm. They're using multiple cameras. I kind of call it the real world or survivor technique where you have an interview style with multiple cameras. The cuts make it more interesting. It's not complicated. We have a single camera looking straight in and then you have a side camera. We have an iPhone app that allows you to have multiple inputs into our software to allow you to have a, a two camera setup. That's if you're doing it live. Yeah. A lot of companies have started pre-recording at least 50 to 75% of the content for the webinar. So it doesn't even have to be the full hour. You can have a very compelling 20 to 30 minute piece of content, take Q&A for 10 minutes, and it's super effective. In fact, we've seen a lot of companies do 15 minutes of programming, 15 <clears throat> minutes of Q&A. And what happens is you force the energy into making the segment, that five to eight minutes of intro value really good. Mm -hmm. The executives who are on the show love it. And even better, you can then do that webinar over and over again. So you use the same tactic of gating it to try to create urgency or try Mm -hmm. to create a deadline to then replay the show the next day, the next week, and half your content is already created. So it makes it much easier for the content creator of the webinar series to rinse and repeat these things to the extent you're targeting customers who are different time zones. Instead of forcing them to wake up in the middle yeah. of the night for your webinar, good luck. Just yeah. do the webinar the next day. 15 minutes pre-recorded, 15 minutes live with Q&A. Super effective. Mm. The hard part's in creating the content. And we're starting to see people really invest here and to think about it as a series. So each show, so to speak, is got a theme to it, or you're doing a webinar series where you're really creating the theme across the entire year. So it depends on your frequency, but a lot of companies are doing bi-weekly webinars, weekly webinars, or monthly webinars. And so the idea is, okay, 
you'd create a kind of theme to it. The theme carries through the intro music, the graphics, transitions, the outro credits, so that you do that once, but then you can reuse it 12 times across the year. So people are just dabbling with this. We thought everyone knew how to do this. We also thought our customers had a ton of resource internally Mm. who knew how to create great video content. What's been clear to us, especially as we do hundreds and hundreds of these webinars and webinar series, is actually our customers are using old web platforms built 10 to 15 years ago and don't actually have internal resource. And so we've actually spun up uh, both a production help to help them drive the webinar, plus a content studio to help them be creative because many of them have budget but don't have resource. And so we're definitely like don't have all the answers, but if we can bring the magic of tel- television to webinars and make 30 to 45 minutes really interesting, then you as a marketer can reuse it every day thereafter with the same techniques to try to drive asynchronous consumption of the content. And what's really interesting is then you can slice it up and use it in social, and especially Mm. if it's an interview series. And it's not hard to do this. All you have to do is make sure that the interview is interesting, make sure that the guest is asked interesting questions. The hard part of interviewing, as you know, is actually on the interviewer side, not the interviewee. So. We're just trying to bring some of those tactics to to companies, but it definitely starts with investing and being intentional about it rather than just clicking and going. Yeah. And so because of that, and you're learning from your customers, how much of your own communications, marketing, or even features in the tool are focused on the education of actually how to create the content, how to promote it, how to leverage the platform versus just giving them the tools? Our marketing, to use your sentence back to you is mm-hmm. entirely using our technology to show people how it's done. Yeah. We have a bi-weekly webinar series that's focused on the art of the show. Mm-hmm. We're calling it kind of show business is the kind of current working title. Mm-hmm. We then have a monthly webinar series that's called through the lens, which is the tips and tricks of the trade. It's much more high production value. So mm-hmm. it's geared towards internal teams at large companies. Our bigger accounts are, are big names that, that most people know. And so often they have internal studio teams. And mm-hmm. so the through the lens target is a more sophisticated, higher production focused buyer. Mm-hmm. And in addition to those two live series, they're always available online within two minutes of the show. You can always watch wow. it on your own terms. You know how the, the concept of a website has changed too, where it used to be, it used to be kind of like assumed most of the selling was done on the phone. And mm-hmm. now there's kind of an assumption that at least half the selling is done before the person least, reaches yeah. out to you. By making the content available asynchronously, people can just watch the webinar when it works for them. Yeah. And those are really, I think, important tactics. Um, but I do, I do think just like as a, as a general frame, we're just kind of exploring the medium and trying to figure it out. So the best way for us to have competitive advantage is to use our own products to try to make them better. And so a lot of our roadmap is actually shaped by us wanting to do it. I mean, we have a lot of features coming out that are really focused on the process of running a one-hour show. Everything from the creative board to the the Figma-style creative board to the run-of-show editor to um, using B-roll and video graphics overlaying the shot instead of using slides and a little head. So everything we're doing is really trying to, to use our products to teach people how to do this and to, to continue to learn ourselves yeah. um, to make them better. Yeah, I think it's probably the easiest way, right, to grow is you, you practice what you preach. You use your own product uh, as your, your growth mechanism, and then you can learn from what you're trying to accomplish. And you know you are your own customer, right? Along those lines, I mean, we talk about the shift in, in sales and the shift in the way people are consuming information and how they're making purchase decisions. Have you seen this platform or this process being used for like product demos? You know, you talk about software companies that asynchronous communication and consumption of content to me makes perfect sense for demo. I think it's you know outrageous that you have to, if you want to see a demo of a, a product or service that you have to schedule a meeting a week out and then you know talk to a sales rep and go through a qualification process. But I just want to see what it does, how it works. And I love the idea of, you know, if you really nail your pitch, right? Why would you try to recreate that every single time? When, totally. like you said, you could create a five minute portion of that where you talk about the purpose, the direction of the company, what your benefits are. And then 
take a step back and then do kind of a Q&A session or a live demo at that point. So to me, I think this is a perfect fit for product demos. And I haven't seen anybody do a demo like this. So I'm curious if you've seen any software companies or anybody else do more of a product demo or sales presentation with this. We are definitely seeing a lot of that. And it's for larger accounts. And it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be what you're thinking of, which is kind of a one-to-many broadcast that's available asynchronously. It yeah. can be actually intended for a targeted sales. audience. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I yeah. can see that as well as more of an account-based kind of approach. And you're willing to take the time to put it put in a little more effort towards that. Totally. We have a lot of our large companies, think Fortune 100, where the audience is a very known set of people. Yeah. It doesn't have to be more than 50 people, but you'd be surprised at how big some of the audiences are for big pitches. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think our vision, of course, is that any 30-minute to 45-minute big meeting, even if it's a pitch, should be delivered in ways that people are moved and that they'll remember. So just take like the Kentucky Derby or even like charity event. Hey, thanks for listening. Solomon here. Are you frustrated because you're not getting enough inbound leads? You're worried that the leads that you're getting are not qualified? Or maybe you're disappointed in the conversion rate from the leads to customers, right? It's really, really low. Well, I got good news for you. I talk to business owners every single day. You're not alone. All right, business go through this when there is a lack of strategy sometimes. Uh, Maybe the approach isn't appropriate for your situation or sometimes you got all of those things right, but it was just poor execution. I'll tell you what, head over to oneims.com and fill out one of our forms. Talk to one of our consultants. That's all we do. We talk to business owners day in and day out. Share with us your challenges and see if we're a fit, right? See if we can find you a solution to your growing pains. You know, our hope here at OneIMS and especially with this podcast is to give you the tools, the technology, the ideas, the strategies, everything we possibly can for you to succeed. All right. So thank you for listening and let's get back to our topic for the day. Both of those formats, if you think about the television format, have what I would describe as three to four minute narrative videos, right? They interview the jockey and tell the jockey's childhood story. Mm -hmm. They don't focus on the jockey's skills, Mm -hmm. right? It's not about their ability to steer the horse, right? It's about what makes him or her different and Mm -hmm. what influenced them in their life, how they overcame hardship, how they rose from wherever they grew up to where they are now at the pinnacle of sport. And so those three to four minute narrative videos are really compelling. They have generally just two cameras. It's an intro and one camera straight on. It's a camera on the side on a slider. It's generally got a music track underneath it to make you feel something. And it's got B-roll and video on top. Like It's super simple as a formula. And so what we're starting to see people do is pre-record more and more of the three to four minute intro, have the talent in a company's case, maybe that's the CMO or the CEO or the head of sales. Mm -hmm. And their time, to your point, is very valuable. Obviously, for like a big pitch, the most important pitch that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But we're starting to see them put energy into that three to eight minute pre-recorded intro narrative. It's got to be story driven. People have to understand the beginning, middle, and an end, right? Where the companies come, what they learned. I took this client on, I learned this. I took this client on, I learned this. I realized the problem was this instead of that. Here's where we are now and how we see the, the world moving forward. This is our perspective. This way you should believe us. Like, don't just take our word for it. Like, this yeah. is why you should partner with us. Those can be delivered in a four to eight minute narrative video better than being done live. Mm. And so that's where we're starting to see people put their energy. At a charity event, as I was mentioning, right, you don't get the, the, um, you know, the main uh, paddle raise mm. as a live component only. Yeah. Every single charity company, every charity event I've been to, there's a three to four minute narrative video where you tell that person's story. Yep. It's got a music track, it elicits emotion, people are bawling, right? And as a content creator, I just assumed because that's more effective. What I've realized is people do that. Of course, it's effective, but people do that because live communication is really hard mm. and things happen. The story that's supposed to create emotional output is hard to tell. People don't have the same communication skills as everyone else. A lot of people 
rank public speaking as the number one thing they're scared of in life. And so people stopped doing those call to actions entirely live, not because they were more or less effective, but because the talent couldn't do it. They would break down. They would start crying. And so that's kind of how we're approaching, whether it's a webinar or a big pitch or a moment at work. If you want to put your best foot forward, make that first call to action compelling, memorable, and interesting. And if you do it well and you do it right, which is camera one, camera two, music, B-roll, same formula I just mentioned, you can reuse that piece of content in every pitch. And the time that is so valuable, the CEO's time, is then gifted back to her. And it is very effective, especially as we're watching all this video outside of work. It's just time for this to come to work. Yeah. So yes, we are 100% seeing it. And it's a mix of live and pre-recorded content. It's investing in the narrative and the story arc. And that starts with vulnerability. It starts with conflict and hardship. It starts yeah. with an insight others don't have. Like those are the core components of, of great storytelling. And I think any company can do it if they know the formula. Sure. So along those lines, what skill sets does it take internally? What technology does it take internally for somebody to start creating this type of content? As you mentioned earlier, you know, you assumed that all of your customers would have these resources internally and would know what to do, but that wasn't necessarily the case. So they were to sign up with, with brand live, let's say what skill sets do they need? Uh, what kind of team would you be looking at to create this type of content? Great question. I mean, it, honestly, it really depends on the internal resources of the company, how much budget they have and where they want to spend their time. We realized that the best events, the best meetings had nothing to do with the features and function of the site and were more focused on the ones that invested in the content. So what that did is it forced us to create feature function that allowed marketers to create great content, everything from a recording studio, run of show, componentry, a creative studio if they need help on the in-show video elements, the intros, the walk-up cards, the lower thirds, the transitions, the credits. That also forced us as a software provider to make the site design, landing page, registration, post-registration experience so easy to use that you can create it really quickly, that it looks nothing like us and everything like the brand. And if you do it well the first time, you hit the three dots and you hit clone, duplicate, and it's so easy to use that you're spending maybe 20 minutes starting the next one. And so we have different models depending on that combination of resource and budget. We realized that a lot of our bigger accounts were struggling with resource. And so we created a creative studio to help them with both the site templates and the show templates in that kind of introductory and enablement period, maybe the first month of the engagement or partnership. We also created a premium service team. So we have kind of basic cable, premium cable. Mm -hmm. Um, And the premium cable comes with a technician to help them run the show. It comes with site design build out. So for those of of our customers who don't want to do things themselves, we have teams of people who will do it for them. I assumed to the earlier point that people wanted to do everything themselves. They wanted to kind of create the templates. They wanted to like build out the show, the site design themselves. But a lot of our customers actually told us the opposite. And it was super counterintuitive. (laughs) They're like, you don't understand. That's not a good use of my time. I'd much rather pay the premium support and have you do it for us. So a lot of our tools actually are oriented towards helping our own teams do stuff quickly. Um, So it's kind of interesting as, as if you think about it, it's kind of, kind of reminds me of early Salesforce where a lot of what they built was services to help their own internal service team in translating those into software. So we've really oriented the buyer to ask which events am I focused on? Is it a big three day event? Is it a webinar series? How much resource do I have internally to gear towards this? Do I have a video producer on staff to help me with the pre-records? Do I have talent in my marketing organization to create video content? It's a different skill set than a, a graphic designer. Yeah. So it's a newer skill set. It's very different and much more challenging. And so for companies that have budget but no resource, we have a creative studio to help augment them. And again, the goal is just to make it really good. Every marketer who works on a project that's really good is proud of it. When they're proud of it, they get kudos and they get compliments and they get people telling them, that was wonderful, the old Bravo concept. Yeah. 
then they want to do more of it because they get this rush, whether it's the dopamine from that or just this energy from people saying, this is good work and it helps drive our business. And so our goal is really just to attack the partnership with the first event. And over time, if we teach our customers how to do this and they want to take on more themselves, then we've succeeded. Like that's totally fine with us. Our goal is to be a partner. And that may mean each engagement looks different until the discipline is learned, until they've felt comfortable doing it, until they want to do it themselves entirely. And we're totally fine with that. Yeah, I think it's with any piece of software, any tool, technology, uh, you know, you need adoption, right, for people to see the value of it. And if you don't give them the tools to succeed, then, you know, they're not going to appreciate what the power of the technology that you're, you're giving them, right? So that's certainly not totally. unique to, to this business. The good news for us as a company is that at this point post-pandemic, most marketers have experimented with these types of formats sure. over the last two years. So we're not trying to encourage people to do anything differently. It's like, okay, let's look at the calendar. Let's look at the things they're doing. And let's just start with one. Let's just find the webinar that's average and could be better. Let's talk about the Diversity and Inclusion Summit that could be amazing and connect with people better. Let's talk about the hybrid event that is largely 50% in person, 50% remote, and really try to design two separate work streams to make both the audiences feel connected to it. Let's find that customer conference and make it the best ever. So it's not evangelizing the concept. It's just trying to attack the current events you're doing and the current event marketing you're doing and just try to make each of them a little bit better. Yeah. So I want to shift focus a little bit and and talk about your actual, you know, marketing strategy, right? So you mentioned you are using your own software to put on these webinars and events at a, you know, a nice frequency and nice cadence that you feel like you can communicate to your audience. How are you promoting this content, right? A lot of our, our listeners, our audience, I think they understand, yes, we need to start creating video. We need to create content that is going to be educational by nature to our audience. And as you mentioned, either going to evangelize this whole concept or this product category or just increase demand for our product specifically. But how have you found the ability? What channels have you been leveraging? Are we looking at organic? Are we looking at paid to actually gain visibility for these videos you're creating? Great question. And honestly, I think we're still experimenting with this, especially as the, you know, the ad world is going through an evolution yeah. During the pandemic, we were entirely inbound through Google Ads. Honestly, okay. we had one landing page. It was overwhelming the amount of interest we had. And <laughs> the so our goal, was certainly high. Yeah. <laughs> our goal as we built our sales organization was actually somewhat counterintuitive. We were literally just trying to qualify. So yeah. we had to like continue to raise our price, not lower it. Not because we wanted to take advantage of people, but we really just needed to segment out the best customers for our product set. And so we did things in a slightly non-traditional way from most product-led companies in the sense that we actually removed the pricing from the website because it was, it was a bit distracting in that segmentation process. Post-pandemic, we're in a different world. And so our marketing tactics are really focused on top-of-funnel and mid-funnel experiments that really try to make sure our brand is, is known. I mean, a lot of it's brand content marketing. And so you use tactics and techniques that are very focused on that deadline. I mean, you mentioned it, but deadlines do work. They do spur action. And so having an event, events have a date. It has a time, the live moment. And so you can use that in your marketing to be effective, whether you're using display ads or social to drive registrations to that event. We don't expect that every event is going to have a direct outcome. Like the goal is not to like convert everybody. It is a top of funnel exercise. And so the goal is to make sure people understand our point of view, understand how we attack the problem, how we're evolving with the problem set, our values. Those types of things are much more important as you take a long view of this thing. We happen to be targeting Fortune 100. So it's a big company generally, though the product is very valuable and effective for any size company above, I'd say, 200 people. But we are very top-of-the-market focused. Mm -hmm. And so we are definitely experimenting with account-based tactics. One of our partners is ZoomInfo. We're trying Mm -hmm. to use intent data and really try to, to use LinkedIn and target folks who are the right personas, marketers, mid-level marketers and above at the companies on our target list. Yeah. To try to be as discreet with the marketing as we can be. 
again, so they understand our values. They're like, what is that? Hmm. Being different is better. We're not trying to like convince them of anything with the marketing. We're just trying to make sure they're aware of us so that if they see my backpack or they see our hat at a conference, they're like, oh, Brand Live, I saw that. Or of course, if they're in our event marketing persona, if we see them at IMIX or they, they hmm. see a, a white paper that is exactly the problem they're trying to solve today, they're like, oh yeah, I, see, I know that, I'm interested in that. And so a lot of it is really trying to orient around a POV and yep. to, to make sure you're in front of the right people based on titles and personas at the right companies. And so that is ABM. It is a little bit more expensive, mm -hmm. but it's got a long view. And again, yeah. we're able to do that because we believe video is going to have to trickle into work at some point. Yeah. And so we are taking a much longer view of this thing, but it's top of funnel, mid funnel. <clears throat> and the only thing I would add is that we'd like in-person events to drive a lot of this. Yeah. And that's just because we think in-person events are, are a good kind of mix of the same tactics I've described virtually. I mean, most great events that are in-person are themed, that have swag that matches the theme, the invitation that matches the theme, uh, music that you pick at the event matches the theme. And so we're going to be coupling the online tactics with regional events that target our best customers to allow the customers to help the prospects understand how we help them. So it's, it's sure. a Salesforce strategy. It's mm -hmm. little dinners around the country that are kind of more mid-funnel mm -hmm. and trying to make sure that people know that we're here to help them. We share their values and we have a point of view of where the world's heading. Yeah. And if we do that well, because our ACV is high enough, right, it's 50,000 plus, mm -hmm. then we can spend that kind of money on the top and mid-funnel and it'd be yep. effective. Now, every company is different with different ACVs, different goals, different target audiences. So everything I'm saying may not apply to you, but sure. I think it's the right perspective and the right things to be thinking about. Yeah, no, I think it is. And I always say like, as marketers, our job really is just how do we get everyone in our addressable market to know who we are and, and know what we do, right? And right. that's what you're describing, right? It's like, that's the first step. Yeah, can we convert some people that, you know, we can, we can explain to them and basically generate some demand out of thin air because we can highlight a problem that they didn't know existed and then now simultaneously introduce a solution. But most of the people, like you said, they may not be in the market at the time. But what we want, if we're truly you know, doing our job, what we want is that when they decide they're ready to make the shift, they, oh yeah, I remember brand life, right? I know they're the number one player in that platform or in that space, right? Um, and that's how we're going to recoup that money. Like you said, that we're, we're willing to invest in the top of the funnel and middle of the funnel. So yeah, I, I like that approach. I mean, that's, that's a lot of the customers we work with as well as, you know, average customer value has to be at least 40,000 plus for, you know, what our, our strategies and the way that we approach it to, to really make sense for them. So, um, yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, before we go, I wanted to just kind of, you know, I guess, change the subject or take more of a, a personal approach here. I know you've invested in, you know, a few companies. Uh, you decided to ultimately uh, you know, basically purchase this company after you were serving on the board and, and take over and kind of run it in a different direction. Um, you know, what's, what's one thing that, that you look for, one thing that you saw in BrandLive that, that made you, you know, want to be an investor or, or made you want to, you know, take over the company? So I, you know, I just came back from the Saster conference in San Francisco oh, yeah. and, I don't know, there may be 180 SaaS companies. And it's definitely an evolving world and things move fast. But it often takes companies a long time to figure stuff out. And so the thing I'm always looking for, and the reason, not necessarily the reason why I was interested in BrandLive, it's maybe a separate conversation, mm -hmm. but as an investor, adaptability to me is really important. And it is often personified by the, the founding team in their attitude and aptitude. I'm listening for and looking for people who have struggled through stuff. Like there's very rarely overnight successes in SaaS. It takes a long period of time. Obviously, you know, Figma sold and for $20 billion and it took them like six years to actually yeah. get to a point where they actually had a really sustainable, interesting product. I don't think their revenue really picked up until two years ago. So I think 2013 to 2022, nine years, it took a long period of time for them to explode I use Figma every day, so I love the thing. And yeah. I totally understand why Adobe needed to acquire it. But the point I'm trying to make is, is there are rarely overnight sensations. And so it's important 
as a founder, as a part of an executive team, to just keep going, mm-hmm. to just keep trying things. I subscribe to this notion of happy accidents. It is, it is how companies are built. And there's so many examples, but like Arm & Hammer is a great example. That thing didn't actually take off until Good Housekeeping put out a magazine article that talked about how baking soda was used in household tactics to clean things. Yeah. Like baking soda was just used in baking. It's literally called baking soda. And a hundred years later, I think it took about a hundred years. It actually started to like have this crazy growth because of people putting it in their fridges. Lucky charms is another great one that I like to talk through, which is they had general mills had too many Cheerios one year. And so they asked this guy to go figure out how to get rid of the Cheerios. He wasn't trying to create a new cereal. Mm -hmm. He was trying to solve a one year problem, make a cereal that, allowed them to reuse the Cheerios. And he went to his grocery store and he shaved off a circus peanut, those orange things. I don't know if you had them growing up. Mm-hmm. And he put the circus peanuts into the Cheerios and some marketers like, okay, we're going to make the circus peanuts interesting. So they turned them into charms and called it Lucky Charms. Total accident, happy accident was not intended to be a thing. So I think of that when I think of smaller companies who are trying to figure it out. Give yourself the best way to find those happy accidents, which is adaptability, which is just trying new things, not being afraid to take risks. And that all comes down to humans and to people and to their ability to adapt in the face of adversity. And so that's what I look for as an investor. I look to hear people's stories. And if I hear challenge, conflict, we haven't figured it out yet, I generally am more interested, not less. Yeah, and I think that's great advice and just kind of have to pay attention and, and look for those opportunities when they arise. Because like you said, you never you never really know what you're, what opportunities are going to arise. You don't know what you don't know. And ultimately, if you come across some sort of a, a challenge, you have to be able to pivot and shift if necessary, if, if the market calls for it. So maybe a little bit opposite of that, right? I undoubtedly gone through some challenges at, at Brand Live. What's one piece of advice you wish you had or one thing you, you wish you knew going back to when you first took over the company? I mean, we almost ran out of money as the pandemic was starting. I mean, it was down to like a hundred grand on the balance sheet. So I definitely subscribe to the notion that we struggled through different parts of the trajectory. Mm-hmm. I would say this, I didn't truly appreciate a very famous Steve Jobs clip, which I've hunted and found and reshared multiple times with people. And it goes something like this, like everything changes for you as a leader, as an executive, when you realize the rest of the world, including your industry, was made up by people that are no smarter than you. And I kind of wish as I became a leader and became CEO that I was a little bit more suspicious of other successes and realized earlier that maybe the people that are in your competitive space are not necessarily smarter than you. And that applies to your investors as well. I mean, most investors have spent their entire career in finance. They've never run a company. They've never led people. And so the same kind of philosophy applies, which is like your job as a leader is to figure out not just where the world is moving, but to to encourage others to to share your point of view on where it's moving. And maybe, just maybe, you are as smart as those around you. And so... I kind of wish I had realized some of this stuff earlier and maybe took the risks to maybe do things differently than others. Peter Thiel has this philosophy that the best companies are often the ones that find the secret garden that kind of tiptoe around the outside and go where everyone isn't. And I kind of wish we were maybe more willing to forego the short term, to forego the short term revenue and actually like think about the post-pandemic business quicker. Yeah. And that starts with deviating from everybody else, diverging, not converging. And it starts with assuming that maybe you are smarter than you think. Maybe you have the skills and the brain power and the, the leadership values to actually do it better than others. And that's the thing that I'm hoping I can encourage and support my team with as well, so that they are also taking yeah. the appropriate risks, trying things different. Like if I hear, oh, I want to copy this, this, and this, I love copying. It's great. But maybe the thing you're copying isn't smarter than you. 
Yeah. Maybe they don't have all the answers. And so it's just a healthy exercise to kind of like poke at some of these assumptions, especially when you're a small company. You might be one-tenth of the size of the company you're trying to emulate, but maybe just having the confidence to just try it and to do it different. I wish I had maybe done a little bit more of that in the first year of the business. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. And obviously, like you said, sometimes you need to have those happy accidents. So maybe it's a good thing that you didn't or it took you a little bit longer because you had some learnings from that. Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's great advice. And we see we see that a lot on a small scale, right? When we're trying to implement marketing strategies at, at certain companies, sometimes it's like, well, you know, none of our competitors do that. Or our competitors aren't right. investing in this channel or they're not doing this and not doing that. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, do we want to do the same thing as all of our competitors or we want to try to stand out? It doesn't mean that this is not going to be applicable to your industry or this strategy won't work for you just because your current competitors aren't doing it or maybe they don't need to do it because, as you said, they're a much larger company. Well, and the world changes very fast. It does. Like If we look back at last summer, that's when Facebook and Apple got into a fight that changed everything in terms of just Instagram ads as an example. Yeah. You also have the rise of TikTok. I mean, more time is spent on TikTok than all other social platforms combined as of last month. It's been two yeah, years. It's, crazy. it's only been yeah. two years of ramp in the United States, basically. Yeah. I get six to seven TikToks a day from my wife and my friends, and they are hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like I literally am like giggling to myself. <laughs> so something's working. Yeah. So, you know, things just move really fast. And Therefore, those who are pattern matching the past are often pattern matching something that's changed, especially sure. in this era. So yep. I'm with you, 100% with you there. Yeah, particularly on that, when you look at analytics and those type of things, right? And you try to look at trends. Every tool that you're using is only showing historical data. And like you mentioned, everything moves so fast that it's not always a, a great indicator or predictor of future success by just looking at the, at the past. So. Yeah, this has been extremely, extremely valuable. Hopefully, you know, to our listeners, you found some value there. Sam, where can any listeners go if they want to learn more about Brand Live or any of the strategies that your your team is recommending or implementing for companies? Our website's brandlive.com. You can find us there. I'm in Portland, Oregon. If you ever get out to Portland, you can come visit us. We're in Northeast Portland, right near a cute little Mexican restaurant called Porcano, if you've been here. Sure. And if you like coffee and beer, we're out here on the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, who doesn't? Perfect. Uh, well, we appreciate you coming on, Sam. And if you're listening here, please give us a like, subscribe, share the podcast with a friend or a colleague who needs to hear some of these messages that we talked about today. And of course, tune in next week for our next episode. All right. So if you enjoyed this episode, here are five things that you could do to help us. Number one, make sure you click that subscribe button so you never miss another show. Number two, share this with a friend that you know needed to hear this. And three, leave us a comment. We love hearing your thoughts, your ideas, things that you've learned so others can learn from you. And four, if you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, let us know so we can put that in our notes and share our insight All right, for our next episode or the one after that. And finally, you guys, join other growth marketers. Head over to oneims.com and check out all the resources that we have made just for you. I'm talking guides, webinars, blogs, videos, anything that could help you become a growth marketer. All right. So thanks a lot for joining us this week on the Growth Marketers Podcast, and I will see you next time.